The next nine months will prove crucial ones for federal contractors. Lots of acquisition regulations cooking, expansion of Buy American, and more White House emphasis on small disadvantaged business. For where it's all headed, we turn to federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And your advice now is for people to concentrate on the basics, basically closing business and sticking to the knitting. Tell us what's driving that idea. Tom, what's driving that idea is that there's been a lot of emphasis over the last few years about the fourth quarter in the federal market. And while the fourth quarter is certainly important, there is business that gets done now, Tom. And I think sometimes that gets ignored. We've seen a lot of contracts let earlier this year, even already. And by now, all agencies should have their dollar figures for the remainder of the fiscal year. In fact, I'm telling companies, if they talk to a client who says that they haven't gotten their number yet from OMB, I think that's probably more of an excuse than a reason because everybody should have their budgets by now. And you should be going out and trying to close business today as well as preparing for the fourth quarter. Right. It's fair to say the government agency you're dealing with doesn't want to save the money because otherwise, you know what happens then. So why would an agency say, well, we don't have our budgets yet? Because it does take Treasury a couple of weeks after the appropriations bills are passed to get the funds loaded. I mean, there's some mechanics there, but we're a month past that now. And that's why I'm telling companies that everybody should have their number. I usually think it takes four to six weeks before each individual office gets its money after Congress passes an appropriations bill. Given the timing this year, Tom, it was probably an extra week to 10 days because we had Christmas and New Year's in that time frame. But certainly people should have their money. We still definitely find federal agencies that will tell specific contractors, you know, we really don't have the funds for that yet. And what they're really saying is we're not going to be spending money on that right now. That should be a signal to contractors that may be time to move on, find another prospect, a better opportunity that they can focus on closing business in the near term. You don't want to go back and hook your wagon to a lot of excuses. You need to go out and find actual business. And by the way, in looking at what agencies are planning in the IT area, the Exhibit 53s have gone away, haven't they? Right. You know, this was something that for years and years, federal contractors had studied religiously to suss through IT opportunities. Now with the ubiquity of IT, changing budget rules, it's not necessarily as discreet as it once was, Tom. But if you're an IT contractor, particularly an experienced company, you can know where to hunt to find those opportunities, even if they're not exactly where they used to be. But that, I think, really speaks to the evolution of the use of technology in pretty much every aspect of government. It's no longer just its own thing. All right. And then there is the Buy America expansion that the president mentioned in the recent State of the Union speech, and it has to do with iron and steel or construction-type materials. But you're saying don't believe for a minute that's all it's going to be confined to. Well, I think what we're really talking about here, Tom, is there's going to be a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion in the federal arena about where and how different Buy America rules are to be applied. And there are a couple of different rules. There's the Buy American Act that has provisions for both construction and non-construction goods. There's the Buy America Act, which is a little bit more narrowly defined to specific types of money. And then there's the Trade Agreements Act, which the president really didn't mention in his State of the Union 
And that caught the attention of lots of people who follow government acquisition, not just myself, but some of my colleagues, because it's so frequent that the two acts, Trade Agreements Act and Buy American Act, are linked together, that I think there's a lot of confusion, certainly in the political class, Tom, and that can lead to policies that are confusing to people in government. And what I'm telling contractors is, hey, contractors, industry, this is your time to be able to get educated on what the differences are between the Buy American Act and the Trade Agreements Act, when each act applies, and what it says, so that you can help your customer get through this and get to a better acquisition. And you can also, as a company, save yourself from having to sign up for an extra rule that you might not have to follow in a specific circumstance. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And as they say in showbiz, wait, there's more. Beyond Buy America, (laughs) there is this new small disadvantaged business executive order, and that could make it tougher for every other kind of small business. I really think it could, and I'm not sure that that's the intention, but we've seen policies over the years, whether they're related to acquisition or something else, that do have unintended consequences. We know that when the Biden administration came into power, one of the first things they did was say, we're going to significantly increase the amount of prime contract dollars that go to small disadvantaged businesses. Well, the executive order that you allude to is more recent action by President Biden that essentially told OMB to come up with a plan to meet that goal a year earlier. So you're going to increase by 50% the amount of contract dollars that go to small disadvantaged businesses. Originally, it was going to be over, I think, five years, or now it's going to be over four years. And in the meantime, I think if you're not a small disadvantaged business, but some other type of small business in the government market, you ought to be wondering what this means for your business. And the simple fact is that the government has not increased its overall 23% small business contracting goal. And while some government agencies exceed that goal, they typically don't exceed it by more than one or two percentage points, sometimes less than that. So the amount of business that goes to small businesses might grow slightly, but it's not growing exponentially. So if you have one particular part of the small business world that is eating more of essentially the same sized pie, that tells you that there's going to be less pie for the rest of the small businesses to eat. And I think that could be a a real challenge. So if you're a woman-owned small business, a service-disabled veteran-owned, or a hub-zone business, just to name three, I think that this is a development that you need to be watching very carefully in terms of how it could impact contracts that you thought were coming to you. Right. And this all happens as the government, especially the Defense Department, is looking at the shrinkage in the number of small businesses doing business with the department. That's right. Thousands of small businesses, Tom, have left the government market, and most of those have left doing business with the Department of Defense. While we see new market entries that come in, what we really see is that small businesses that are able to commit the resources that are ironically large small businesses that can abide by the government's rules and regulations or that maybe are so small that they have those brand new technologies that are in development where there are specialized programs that accommodate those types of companies. But if you're a general small business selling commercial items to the government and you don't have an extra socioeconomic designation beyond being a small business, 
I think this could be a very tough time for you. It's not just me. Uh, I'm hearing from companies that I know who have that type of situation, and they feel like they're being squeezed out from both ends, from the larger businesses, who are, of course, obviously very capable of doing lots of things in the market, but also these other businesses that may have a more favored, at least in the current marketplace, socioeconomic designation, and that poses a real challenge. And for them, they're like, well, I'm either going to stay in this market or I'm going to have to leave entirely if I want my business to thrive. All right. Well, we want people to stay in the federal market. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you. And I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is 
when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it, and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience. And 
Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.